What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is a new one-hour interview program with authors and artists attempting to capture the elusive elements of this special place in which we live. I'm Peter Neal, host of this new program. My guest this week is Gordon Bach, sailor, singer, songwriter, storyteller, woodworker, sculptor, and rememberer. Gordon, welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. Thank you. So, we usually start with some personal history. Uh, back to the moment of discovery when suddenly you knew that you were a singer, that you were a musician. Did it come from your family and your upbringing? Uh, yes, some of it did. Um, there wasn't any one moment uh, that I discovered that I was anything. But uh, no, my mother's family was very musical and they they sang. They, they knew a lot of uh, American traditional songs. But they really, they sang pretty much everything. They also, her brother and sisters, lived in various places uh, around the world, and they, they learned the songs from those places, and like Italy and um, Russia and uh, Australia. So I got a taste of that stuff when I was very young and just uh, slid into it easy. Nobody was pushing me. Can you remember the first time you held an instrument? No, but it was probably a ukulele or possibly my mother's. My mother had a tenor guitar. Probably, I don't, I don't really remember. Well, you were, at least you were encouraged. It wasn't a tool of the devil. Music was not a tool of the devil. No, not at all. My mother played piano and, uh, and would dance uh, when asked. <laughs> I don't dance when asked anyway, so I don't know about you. Is there any particular moment in your career where uh, suddenly it became that you were validated in this in this work some way beyond your own sort of inclinations? Well, I would say uh, a lot of people had more faith in me than I did. Um, I have heard this word talent bandied about. And um, if there is such a thing, um, it was not presented to me or my brother. I had, for instance, no real sense of rhythm. I could sing you 80 or 100 songs, but I had no rhythm because I never played with anyone else. This was when I was 15 and uh, played guitar but uh, I dread to think what it might have sounded like. So you were an audience of one? Uh, is quite often, often, yeah. But you knew when you were on and when you were off. As you were singing to yourself, could you hear yourself? No, not really. Mm-hmm. No, not really. I was very uh, slow in finding vocal pitch, and that has plagued me um, for many years. I, I'm, I'm better at it now. I've been getting better for the last 60 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
70 years or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and had to be taught rhythm. And, you know, a man who ran the shipyard I was working in that summer where my father worked, took me aside after work and said, come on up to my place. And he played Dixieland for me. And I uh, sat me in front of his hi-fi set. And uh, he just made me move my body. Made me, he said, if you're going to sit, if you're going to play that instrument and sing sitting down, you got to learn how to dance sitting down. And of course, Dixieland is pretty infectious stuff. And uh, he knew all the greats. It was wonderful. So your father worked in a shipyard. Yeah, in he he helped run a shipyard uh, during the war. The government told the yard that it was going to build wooden boats for the for the government, and they ended up having fifteen hundred men and women working there, and building these large vessels, some three hundred feet, uh, wooden vessels. They, how they assembled that crew. I don't know. My father didn't know anything about building boats, but he knew boats, and I guess he knew people that could do it. Did you apprentice in the yard at all? Uh, not really. Um, I worked there one summer. I was uh, I was on the dock, but it rained all summer, so no yachts came in. And so they handed me a shovel and would deliver uh, truckloads of gravel to me, and I built two rather beautiful parking lots. You know, it takes it takes a village. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and but, honest work. But I learned a lot there uh, because I knew the, all the men. I sort of grew up and hanging out in that yard. And um, any anything you wanted to know was right there for the asking, really. Did you know early that you had some kind of affinity with the sea? It, you know, it was there and I was there. And it was just a constant presence in my in my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew and admired some fishermen that I knew, you know, they were all around and and somehow more accessible. Their kids were, you know, they were more accessible to kids uh, back then. They, they really had time for you. Mm -hmm. And even if you didn't know anything about uh, fishing or whatever. And... Uh, when my brother became a fisherman, fished out of Vinyl Haven for, for a few years. So, you know, and I had a lot of friends that were fishermen. So uh, it was just all around. And what about sailing? Sailing, well, we had the schooners there, which was, um, I didn't realize how unique it was. To, I couldn't find them anywhere else. <laughs> and that was, uh, I got into that, and I got uh, some good experience uh, doing that because uh, it was heavy gear that were built for cargo carrying. I, I learned quite a bit there. I worked for uh, Captain Havilah Hawkins off and on for seven years, so seven, seven seasons. Sort of a mythological figure. Yes. His son is my neighbor. Oh, ha ha and, ha and, still, and still in the business, yeah. although about to retire, I think. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, but these boats were carrying cargo. They weren't still fishing, were they? Oh, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's I think only two or three in the whole fleet that ever fished. But uh, most of them carried cargo. Uh, quite a few were center borders. They were coasters. So they needed to work in shallow waters. And, but they didn't have engines. And so you had to, you had to sail the old way. Right. You had to uh, listen to the world around you or, or you didn't. You didn't get there. Did you make the transition from cargo to human cargo? 
Some of the old skippers had carried cargo, but um, they were always they were, they were all passenger passenger boats. boats yeah. yeah, it's amazing how the fleet has continued in some ways even expanded. Although I think COVID has hurt them quite a bit. Well, they suffered one one season where only two boats went out, yeah. and uh, but now they're all they're all back out there, and and uh, even even one we didn't think was going to make it, but uh, they're they're out there. So, but I don't think they would have survived a couple more years of that. Right, and those vessels and those captains are actually finding successor captains now. It's sort of a generational shift going on, which I find just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It is hard now to find somebody willing to do the work. Yeah. It's an awful lot of work. It's yeah. a great life, but it is an awful lot of work. Yeah. I was involved with Ocean Classroom for quite some time, and we had uh, three schooners, and then also the Letty Howard uh, in New York. And uh, at one point, we took 12 main foster home kids uh, on the verge of being put out into the world with $100 and nothing more to Venezuela and back. It was like two years before the mass, seven months. And they all came back. They all went back to school. Uh, They all got jobs. And because, what did they learn there? They learned um, respect for authority. They understood competence. Because if you were incompetent, you risked not yourself, but everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, They understood time, to be on time, to stand watch your full value for your time. All these things were just natural lessons. Yeah. And um, I think that's still true um, in these in the sea education vessels around the world. Yeah, it is. It's a wonderful dose of a lot of things you really could use all your life. Right. Let's talk a little bit about what, what I call Atlantic memory. Uh, when I first suggested that phrase to you, your, your comment to me was, well, it, it seems a little vague. And uh, that terrified me. But then as I was reading more about you, I saw that you characterized yourself as a rememberer. And I said to myself, well, excuse me, if he's remembering, what is he doing? He's remembering memories. And he becomes an agent by virtue of song and storytelling, of the continuity and vitalization of those memories and traditions. Do you do you see yourself as that? I rarely sit back and uh, try to achieve the long view of things. Uh, I'm, you know, usually worried about what's beyond my nose or the tool that's in my hands. But yeah, all of those things, uh, I just pass on stories. And have been a compulsive storyteller for many years. Uh, that's just the way life was around me. You, you taught other people. You shared your opinions by telling stories. Well, compulsion is one thing. Um, if you're compulsive, it's just more than just a good good yarn. It has a kind of, <laughs> some would argue, neurotic purpose. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's what the drawings and the uh, carvings are about. A lot of them are, are just memories. People that I remember doing things. I mean, there's a man with an adz, mm-hmm. um, and you don't. You don't see that used very often now. You don't see it used well. I uh, I remember the first time I heard your name in a very unexpected place, Time Magazine. Oh, How yeah. did that ever happen? You know, I don't really remember. I just I thought it was a, a 
very odd request. Um, and uh, so they just came and came and interviewed me and printed. They got some of it right. And, but not all the. But I would assume people, it was something of a boost. People, people love to make things up. Mm -hmm. I think it was somewhat. Yeah, and I think I'd made uh, made the first album by that time, and and of course, Noel Stuckey was uh, the reason for behind that album. He talked me into it and produced it, and uh, was uh, just a, a great boost. Noel Stuckey, also my neighbor and one of the founders of WERU Radio. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The memory has a kind of uh, traditional shape that is sometimes called Celtic, so the Celtic traditions that were essentially transferred from the old countries, the North countries, um, into Cape Breton and, and, and Atlantic Canada and Maine. Do you feel that connection? Um, I don't feel much of a direct connection to Maine, but then again, I'm not a scholar, so it's, it's a little harder to trace, I think, from my perspective. But the traditions, of course, yes, there are some traditions that have come down. The songs can be a little misleading. Some of them are from poems, and, and that's the mythology that the poets are building up, uh, which is not necessarily the working people. For instance, uh, Kingsley, Charles Kingsley, wrote a poem, um, Three Fishers Came Out of the West. People have been putting tunes to that. I, I probably did when I was a teenager. I did a lot of that. But, you know, the men must, must work and the women must weep. Um, that's valid, but it isn't, it isn't what happened. Right. You know, in the Celtic tradition, look at Collar Heron and songs like that. Uh, Heron's Heed, the Scottish tradition where the men followed the fish and the women followed the fishing boats because they did the gutting, they did the selling of the fish. You know, they were working as hard as the men. Uh, I once saw in a museum a kind of uh, circular shape which outlined the seasons and then the role of men, women, and children adapting to the work of the seasons in mm -hmm. a kind of constant rotation, kind of mandala of, yeah. of, of, of time and tradition. And it was very clear that the men honored the women's role, that they knew what was going on there. They weren't just all pining, but they were working hard, yeah. and the children too, and the old men and the women as well. Yeah. I mean, it was a kind of integrated community that you do hear in, in song. Yeah. And in native cultures as well, sort of the role of the grandmother and the grandfather as, as elders and wise, mm -hmm. wise carriers of wisdom. It's my it's my impression that that's just true all over the world. Essential to it, of course, is work. Hmm. Uh, all of these are work songs in one way or another. I, yeah, I, that's true. Um, these don't necessarily get classified that way. We sort of think of work songs as, you know, uh, Woody Guthrie kind of work songs or chain gang songs. Yeah, oh, I think of uh, sea shanties, not that I right. sing many, but... Right. It's amazing how sea shanties continue. They, they have their yeah. rabid audiences. Yeah, they rise and fall with the tide. You yeah. know, every, every few years, they get rediscovered. <laughs> when I was at South Street, we had a very, very aggressive sea shanty group, and I was a cynical old goat, and I said, oh, come on. And but I said, okay, fine. We can use the spaces, use the ships. It'd be great. 
night after night, week after week, hundreds of people would show up from Queens and the Bronx and join in. Wow. And it was a, a kind of an amazing uh, amalgam of cultures. And sometimes people who weren't sort of sea shanty types, but had comparable songs of work from different cultures, would stand up and sing sort of spontaneously. Mm -hmm. So you'd get a, a song in Yiddish. Yeah, wonderful. You know, it was it was it was amazing, and so I my cynicism was quickly uh, overcome. Yes, well, yeah, they're even popular in Poland. They they have festivals, sea shanty festivals in Poland. Right. I suppose that got to keep your navy alive. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and Bennett Konezny has been all over the world collecting work songs. And some of them are just startlingly beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, as melodies. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As, as works of musical art, yeah. really. Yeah. So fishing, for sure, but farming as well, um, and kind of associated activities. It's, uh, I see it as a kind of acculturating flow, that it's one way that we've kept in touch with the, the kind of generational themes that some people pursue, pursue genealogy, and that's one way of doing it, sort of looking up the family in the Bible or or whatever it is. But there's also this other thing of just perpetuating the old songs, the old dances, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and really making them modern. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were involved in contra dancing for a while. Yeah, we actually, Captain Hawkins and I used to try to stir that up out in the islands, and it had almost died out here. There was very few people. Uh, the, the old New Englanders, actually, my mother played with them. Uh, it was a bunch of old guys that did quite a bit of uh, contra dance music, and the old people were dancing it. And um, people would come down from Canada to, to dance at Beaver Lodge because that was one of the few places that, that was alive around here. So he, he played a lot of that music on the fiddle, and, and uh, I learned it on the guitar. And that was that was uh, a nice thing to be part of, and I used to love to play if people would dance. Uh, yeah. I could do that all night. It was great. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU FM. My guest today is Gordon Bach, singer, songwriter, storyteller, a keeper of traditional music and ways of thinking that are unique to Maine, to the Atlantic coast and to the cultural flow of humanity as informed and shaped by our ocean world. Every now and then you still run across a kind of group of old guys sitting on the benches outside the, the shops, the shipyards. Um, there was a wonderful column in one of the vineyard, Martha's Vineyard newspaper called The Wheelhouse Loafer. Yeah. And it was sort of the view of an old guy looking out through the wheelhouse window at what was going around, the upstarts, the new. And um, I, I remember being sort of envious of that. Oh, God, isn't that wonderful that these old guys can sit and talk amongst themselves and laugh and carry on? Maybe I can do that someday. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> and I keep looking for a fish house to sit in front of and just, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I have friends that love to get together. We've played music 40 years together. And often on various uh, configurations and for various reasons and with varying results. And we still get together uh, 
oh, at least well, once a month, usually. Really? Play music together. Yeah, that's great. Are your friendships almost entirely involved with music? No. No? No, a lot of them are, and a lot of them are because from people around the world that we've sung for. And, and uh, Well, that counts. Oh, yeah. It's it's lovely. The, the, that's the great thing about uh, traditional music is that, uh, or even folk music, which is just <laughs> keeping the tradition alive and making up your own tradition um, or recording your own, reporting your own. And uh, is that um, there's a direct connection with your audience. Uh, for instance, I, I learned years back that uh, no matter how abstruse uh, the question I had, I could ask a folk audience and somebody in there would know it. I once in New Jersey asked, uh, said, I need a word. I've forgotten the word. And it is the gypsy word for a non-gypsy. I was thinking of Gorgio. And at the end of the concert, I got not only the southern Spanish word, which is gadjo, but I got a, a flamenco concert. <laughs> the guy that told me the word said, come back to my place. I'll play you some uh, nice uh, gypsy tunes. And he did. It was delightful. What is it that, where is, where is it that you're doing a kind of ethnomusicological exercise? What's your, 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 you've been documenting music from, is it Mongolia or is it? Oh, yes, some, uh, some Mongolians uh, who have been out of Mongolia for over 400 years, the Kalmyk Mongolians, they haven't seen their mother country for 400 years, but they've kept a lot of the songs alive. Yeah, and I, I, played, uh, I played in a dance band, so they weren't exactly doing contra dances, but uh, it was group dances. Mostly the kids were dancing, the older people were teaching them, and I ended up playing music with them. And then because I was interested, they started giving me recordings of their stuff. Or I would make a, you know, I would tape a few things, talk about an accidental collection. I mean, I didn't know how to, for the life of me, I couldn't do what you're doing now, conducting an interview. Yeah. Um, anyway, but I ended up with quite a collection and I'm organizing. There's actually more interest in my collection in Russia where these people have a, a small state, I guess you'd call it, than, than there is in the United States. But isn't that the point? The point here is, it's amazing, really, a diaspora of 400 years maintaining their cultural identity through music. Yeah. It's a perfect example. That's amazing. And yeah. I think that's happening here on the, on the Atlantic coast as well. I think that there's a kind of binding together through music that is sustaining values in the face of all kinds of challenges and, yes. and uh, corruptions. Yep. That's true. It's, it's going on amongst the schooners, the, uh, the Windjammer fleet. There's people like Bobby Quinn from Eagle Island who uh, reads his uncle's poetry, which is originally um, set to popular tunes of the day. Right. And uh, sort of my grandfather's time. And you know he's he he's keeping it keeping it alive. Ruth Moore did it. Ruth Moore did an amazing job of chronicling life on the Maine coast from the era of my childhood and hers. Well, are there archetypes? Are there the re repetition of stories just uh, over time, culture to culture, even where you suddenly see that 
maybe the costumes are different, maybe the names are, are changed, but the basic underlying stories are the same. Um, I think so. I'm not scholar enough to make the kind of comparisons I'd like to, but yeah, you see it, the, the murder ballads, I'm sure. Well, yeah, well, I've seen translations of murder, well, gee, I even sing a Mongolian murder ballad. In a way, it's, it's, it's short. But uh, but it's good to know that murder is universal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Murder and also the uh, people love to hear about that stuff. But there's also the the soul lost overboard, and uh, you know how many different uh, cults or religious orders are sort of organized around the idea of, of loss, mm -hmm. the lost husband, the lost wife, overboard, who somehow comes back. Um, as a CEO or as a as as a as a specter, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the ghostly sailors. Yep, you're right. So there's a there's a kind of of link. It seems to me from the outside that again is recognizable, musician to musician. That suddenly you're you're singing a song, somebody sings a murder ballad, and you pipe up with a Mongolian version. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's wonderful. Yep, that's true. Can you give me some of your favorite stories? Are there particular stories that speak directly to you in terms of a kind of resonating within yourself? Oh, yeah. Just about everything I sing or, or tell, it either amuses the hell out of me or it, uh, I have it in me because I need it. And this music has been my salvation. I mean, I'm not in it for to do the world any favors, I'm in it for my own salvation. And uh, it's it's food. And I, a lot of musicians are that way. They just need it in their body. And they, you know, and they'll go out and dig it up if, they, if they've got to. And uh, so, you know, a lot has fallen my way, too, because people know, learn I'm interested. You know, so they'll send me a song or a story and... and uh, it's once again, it's the audience feeding, feeding the artist. But yeah, um, Ruth Moore's stories. I, I did record them because nobody else was recording them. I would have, you know, there's other people I would have chosen to do it before me, but nobody that was interested that I knew. Tell me a little bit more about Ruth Moore. Well, she she was a a novelist, basically very literary person. She was born on God's Island off Mount Desert, and um, she worked all around the country, uh, worked for Reader's Digest, uh, and then and then started writing novels about Maine, about her own childhood. The Ware is a, about the Ware on Gotts Island, and um, really uh, amazing stories, and, you know, pretty raw and, and very robust and very honest, and that just wasn't being done. Back then, and especially um, women weren't writing that way very much. Elizabeth Ogilvy did, but she wrote quite a bit of poetry. And she wrote uh, Cold as a Dog in the Wind Northeast, which is a great little book of, uh, she called them ballads, and they really are. They have rhyme and meter and um, no tunes. And so I've, you know, I've learned all those pretty much. And I met her. I actually ended. Well, if you ever want to hear some wonderful fireworks, 
I introduced her to Kendall Morse. Mm. <laughs> there was a fly on the wall there for an afternoon. It wasn't that fun. Mm-hmm. The two of them got going. About what? Oh, God, everything. What's this campground outside your house, just beyond your house, Ruth? Oh, yeah, well, and she'd go off on that. Um, see, they pretty much leave me alone now. But they, they were stealing my firewood there for a while for their, for their little campfires. And, and I work hard to put that up every year. So um, one day, uh, they were all, you could hear them all out there, you know, in the campground. It's pretty close. And I, I was standing in the doorway of the entry, which goes either to the barn or to the house. And right up above where I can reach it is a loaded shotgun right up above the door. And I heard this screech owl light up. It's a terrible scream. And I didn't even think. I pulled down the rifle and I fired both barrels. She said, in the morning, there wasn't a soul in that campground. <laughs> <laughs> did you put these to, to did you make music for these 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 ballads she she no no i did not yeah. no i i told him the way the best i could but she did give me a poem once called little river and just uh, handed it to me and said i think this one could use a tune she was perfectly capable of writing tunes herself which she had done she used to do that for her grandchildren. But I did I did write that and record it. So can you sing it? Uh I think I can. Little River, it's uh a little river comes out by the town of Cutler. And there used to be a lighted whistle buoy off there. It's probably a bell or a gong now. But the person in this poem has heard that buoy all his life, and now he's hearing it, he realizes, from above him. And he's just figuring out that he's drawing. Little river, lighted whistle, cried almost. Sleepy song from the breakers calling me back to shore. Whistled soft to my silver river, whistled long to Sun, whistle low to the moon and the morning, not to me, never to me. For I'm swinging hard in another country. Low, rolling it easy, and the dolphins follow me where I go. Whistle it high to the flood tide, making 
Whistle it along to the willing song. Whistle it wild to my girl's heartbreaking. She'll remember she was the one. Spring comes warm over the storm comes black. I was headed home when the engine given took me back. Whistle it high to the graveyard breakers. Whistle it where the secret over the great shoals ran Whistle the words that was in my pocket When I had pockets When I was a man Isn't that something? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is a beautiful tune. Thank you. Uh, thank you. The drowning. We think about drowning? Oh, yes. I've had occasion to a few times. <laughs> Can you tell me? Um, yeah, just, just being out when I shouldn't have been out. Um, yeah, there's a few times I've tried to make the bargain and. <laughs> If you get me out of this one, I'll do anything, <laughs> whatever. I'll never eat Rice Krispies again, whatever. Yeah, there's times when you... I've often thought, too, it was uh, uh, not a bad way to go. Think of all the fish I've eaten. See, seems only fair. <laughs> yeah, what the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, or the other way around. Yeah. Uh, it's my recurring nightmare, Downey. Yeah. Suffocation. Mm -hmm. I don't think of, of it as a kind of returning to the watery essence that no, we all are. No, it couldn't couldn't be fun. No. Of course, I would love for you to just keep singing all, all the rest of the time. What about love stories, love songs? Do yeah. You, do you have a favorite? Whoa. A lot of them to choose from. Yeah, that's true. And there's there's different kinds of them too. I don't I don't sing a lot of Sort of straight love songs. That's sort of a. I think that's a modern. That's a modern thing. How about unrequited? I also don't think in categories. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you if you sang one, it would remind me of another one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I keep thinking of these. If you want, we can call them categories. I, I'm, now I'm going to deny that I ever used the word. But but but. There are uh, sort of uh, patterns of emotions that, that, that come back and they come back around. You see it in poetry. You, mm. you, know, you, you look for it when you're reading fiction. You, you, you know, it, it's part of the value of this kind of cultural thing between the performer and the performance, actually, and the, and the audience. I mean, isn't the connection based on um, not just recognition of talent, but a kind of shared emotional response? Oh, yes. Oh, don't you want your audience to, to laugh and then cry and then laugh and then cry again? Yeah, I don't really think of it that way. 
but I think of going out there with some cool stuff that I want to share mm -hmm. um, that I think they're going to like. Is that selection political? I don't see you as a, a polemicist, overt polemicist, are you? No, I, I, I don't push one particular thing. Although Scott Ellerick would say that everyone who performs is performing a political act, you might say. And, and yeah, I just don't, I don't feel that it's my job to tell people what to think, especially my audience, which is in general uh, smarter than I am and certainly more experienced and maybe not in folk singing or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, I just I don't like to tell people what to think. I like to show them things that I think are cool. They may have done things differently, and we maybe call that smarter, but they wouldn't be in your audience if they weren't seeking, if they weren't seekers for something, and that they felt they see in what in your in your performance some kind of teaching and learning experience. Yeah, well, I, 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 of course, I, I think you tend to attract the people that are seeking the same kind of things that you are, and that works two ways, luckily. But uh, no, I don't think in terms of political movements particularly. But uh, it, was, it was funny how little in my experience up until I, I started working in the cities in the winter, how little I was aware of politics, how little it came up. Or, but there wasn't much on radio. Well, there, there's shipboard politics, and surely there's small town politics. Oh, yeah, there was that. There was that. And yet I wasn't involved in that. I was sort of across the harbor where the big boats hung out, kind of what I was interested in. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU-FM. My guest today is Gordon Bach, singer, songwriter, storyteller, a keeper of traditional music and ways of thinking that are unique to Maine, to the Atlantic coast, and to the cultural flow of humanity as informed and shaped by our ocean world. Uh, my, my son's a musician, and he uh, has evolved uh, sort of out of Irish music into sort of more modern, even some rock and roll. But he has one song he comes back to all the time. Do you have a song like that, that somehow it seems right for every audience that you ever played in front of? Um, yeah, I, I have a few songs like that. I certainly wouldn't do them every concert. I'm I was always terrified of getting sick of hearing, you know, any one song or myself or whatever. But uh, I would say that the first one that popped to mind is an unrequited love song, and it's Barbara Allen. Yeah, I heard it. I liked it. I never had any version that I had learned until I heard Dave Calder sing it. He's a, a fellow from um, Skowhegan originally, but uh, of Canaan now, he and his family. And it is just stunning. It has all the mystery of why she, she spurns him. It doesn't explain it the way some versions do. But it has a, a verses in there that he probably made up. Uh, but it's totally his take on it. It is, and when I sing it to audiences, I, I notice occasionally that nobody's coughing. And this thing's seven minutes long, and nobody's moving around or anything like that. It's, um, 
the silence really becomes noticeable. So um, let's talk a little bit about Maine. The idea here is to see if we can get uh, different perspectives on the, this place where we live. It has a special spirit that becomes, I think, even more pertinent and poignant as the wheel turns, as history evolves, as things around us change. Um, and it, there's a value, there's a set of values or there's a set of of, of circumstances that are that that can be articulated. I think that uh, they come from the landscape. Uh, they come from the, the, the woodland. They come from the coast. They come from the, the deep sea. Do you have any songs that, that, that speak to you that way, that are sort of speak more precisely to the to the main the main experience? Um, well, one that comes to mind is the old figurehead carver. It's actually in New Brunswick. It's a poem by a, a preacher in New Brunswick, H.A. Cody. And uh, he wrote it about the fellow who carved the figurehead for the Marco Polo, which was built in New Brunswick, famous clipper. And it's just, it's just talking about the process of pulling something out of the wood, that he sees all these things, and he just, he has to carve them. He needs to do that. And you can you can hear in it the uh, imperative to do good work. You can sense that he wouldn't like himself if he let something go out of the shop that wasn't right. And that's the way it was at the at the shipyard. They were very proud of what they did. Built some really lovely vessels, and they could also build fishing boats. Mm -hmm. But that was all around me. Dick Swain sent me this as a birthday present. He'd made it into a song called The Old Figurehead Carver. And he put a refrain to it. The refrain goes, while my hand is steady, while my eyes are good, I will carve the music of the wind into the wood. Isn't that lovely? Perfect. And he got that poem so thoroughly, you know, so well that, uh, that he could come up with a refrain like that that just put a, a real point to it. And I speak to you directly as a woodcarver. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But the story I was thinking of that, one of the values is, is just, yes, people were valued for the quality of work they did. Um, and you could tell they were proud of it. I had a young fellow, a friend of mine, Sam Tibbetts. He's still around. He was working in the shipyard the same uh, years that I was around there quite a bit. And uh, he worked under a man named Dayton Wheaton, was his name, who was the head machinist there. And Wheaton was just a legend. He was also the head mechanic. And um, he could do anything. And the two of them were sitting there having lunch. And they were sitting on the workbench of the carpenter shop. This was in the springtime. And I was sitting on the table saw runout table. And I was looking at them with the windows behind them and the harbor and the town behind them. And it was in the springtime. And it was just spitting snow. And... Uh, I heard this motor coming by. I, I looked out the window, and here was two mastheads coming by. I couldn't see the boat. But I delivered that boat to um, Norfolk the fall before. So I kind of knew those mastheads. So that she was puttering, putting by with her motor going. And uh, the conversation was drifting around. All of a sudden, young Sam, my, my buddy, perks his head up. And he said, that's Alfie. 
Well, he's facing me. He can't even see there's a boat out there. But he heard that motor, and he said, that's Alphard. And wheat, he listened for a second. He said, yes. And he didn't change those valves out like I told him to, did he? And that was just, I will never forget that moment. <laughs> There's a famous sort of critical remark about the soul and the machine. And they do have personalities. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had a place in sort of a faux lighthouse, fake lighthouse in Nova Scotia. And it was surrounded by one of the most beautiful saltwater farms. And the old farmer came from a family of boat builders and mechanics and sailmakers, Stevens family. And uh, Randy Stevens would talk about one lungers, collect them. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he said, I can tell every, every one lunger engine I've ever heard, I can separate it from another one. I can tell you who's, whose boat it is and who's driving it, whether wow. the father's driving or the son's driving it. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's great. <laughs> I said, you know, you got to learn how to listen. <laughs> mm -hmm. That is a, another un, unquantifiable thing that, that happens to people who work on the water. I mean, they're out there every day. The information that's going into their brain every day of their lives is untaggable. You can't put words to it necessarily, but it adds up to something which is why their hand moves on the tiller a certain, or the, the wheel a certain way, they couldn't tell you why. Or pick the spot. You know, where do you trawl? Where do you, where, you know, yep. yes, you can do it over time and time and time again, and there's sort of evidence that, that says, well, this is a good one, that's not. But how do you necessarily, because the conditions change all the time. Yeah. And yep. you're doing it now, too, with temperature change in the, in the, in the water. You know, habitats change. Mm -hmm. Fish migrate. Lobsters migrate. And uh, you, I, you, it's a complex system. And I have enormous respect for, for uh, first of all, I have enormous respect for anyone who has real skill. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they have to be, I mean, tradesmen deserve the kind of respect that sometimes they don't often get. Yeah, that's true. And uh, one of these days we'll have no tradesmen. And then what do we do? Yeah. Who's going to fix the well? And who, yeah, yeah. Start sure. right there. I often wonder if in another setting where there's a lot of, well, I know people who work outdoors uh, have it, the same kind of information coming in. I wonder if city people have the same thing. Oh, you do. Street smarts. Yeah. Street smarts. Sure. And it's real. I mean, you can read the landscape. I yeah. lived in Tokyo for a while, and it's a city that's a If you want to see a real city of light, it's not Paris. It's Tokyo. Because it's just an, an explosion. You, know, you go to Shibuya or Shinjuku parts of Tokyo. It is an explosion of neon art forms. And I used to talk about light marks. And I would say, well, we're going to go to this place. And you want to turn left at this light mark. Not the landmark. Not the street sign, because you can't read it. But the light mark. And, and, that's, and people find their way. <laughs> following the light in places like that. It's also all the senses are applied. That's the other thing about it. You know, out there you, or, and a farmer too, you're listening, you're hearing, you're feeling, you're smelling, mm. you're tasting. All of these things come part and parcel. It's a full sensory experience, which, yes. which is. We don't pay a lot of attention to things even like smells, something as big as smell. But I was driving in Philadelphia once, had the windows open, it was, I think in the spring. 
And I drove into a farmer's market, and this was 40 years ago, and all of a sudden, I was so thoroughly back in Sedgwick, the woods of Sedgwick, well, Herrick's actually, um, that I had to stop the car. It's almost as though I couldn't see out the windshield. It was something I'd smelled. Smell really, for all we don't pay a lot of attention to it, it's a great trigger of memory. Well, and the same thing is true uh, with the things that we choose to see and the things we don't see because we don't choose mushrooms, for example. Mm. You know, I once lived in Iowa, and there were thousands of morel mushrooms around. I could never see a one. Well, and people say it's ridiculous, and I said, "There, there, should put that. How about that there?" So finally, someone came and said, "This is what you look for. Taught me how to see." Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then suddenly I, and so that teacher-student thing, something as simple as saying, well, you look for a morel mushroom here. You don't waste your time over here. You mm -hmm. only look here. Chanterelle, same thing. Um, and and it, it, it just informs you and makes you a, a, a wiser person and, and one who values those things yeah. more. I toured with a dry stone wall builder from uh, Scotland. I look, I see them now. I see them everywhere and I judge them and, you know, that's a fool's wall. And, oh, there's an informal one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's fun. But so, suddenly they're there and they weren't before I knew him. Suddenly there'll be a tourism path of, of walls, stone wall path. That would you be can just follow all the stone walls in the state of Maine. Yeah. If you want to have a subcategory, you can follow the fool's wall. Yeah, tour. Right. <laughs> I'm, let's. We're going to run out of time. I'd I'd love to get you to sing one more song if I could. Yeah, this one is uh, it's one of mine. I wouldn't call it anthemic at all, but it it illustrates something you you were you mentioned uh, when we first talked about this, and that's interdependence, and that is certainly the one of the things that's I think important in a lot of the trades around here. Um, and I it took me a long time to learn it. Um, so I made a song about it when I finally figured out what it was. Here we go. Well, my sailors. The first boat I took out to sea, I didn't know where that boat was going. All I want was away from here, and all I knew was keep on rowing. First boat I put out to sea, I wouldn't have none to sail with me, none to row, none to tow, and none to stow my cargo down. But I come and stay them through the storm, and all my lady flights were gone. 
There was three old sailors by my helm. Tell me I don't sail again. One named Peter, one named Saul. One don't claim no name at all. One to sing, one to haul, and one to heave me when I fall. When I stumble on the reef, I got three good sailors take my grief. One to bail, then to sail, and one to hold me when I wail. So fog and foul or fair and free, it's all the flaming sand to be. Cause all the good hymns that ever sail rolling down my weather rail. When I turn for making land, I got three good sailors to my hand. One to bail and one to sail, one to hold me when I'm well. If I hoist my sail again, come in sun or go in rain, all the sail come hand and hold and steer with me. One to hold and one to toll and one to ease me when I go. One to hold, one to toll and one to heave me when I go. Gordon, thank you. You're very welcome. It's been fun. Oh, good, I hope it was. It was wonderful for me. You've been listening to a conversation with Gordon Bach as part of the conversation from the Pointed Furs program here on WERU 89.9 on your radio dial and heard worldwide. Thanks for listening. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story. The portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island, and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. 
It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in. That sense of liberty and space and time, which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is Elite Island Books audio project, produced by Tricia Badger, with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find archive public affairs shows at weru.org and find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.